0: My name is Niloufar Oral. I'm a member of the International Law Commission and also a member of the law faculty at Istanbul Bilgi University, where I teach, among different courses, international environmental law. So today I have the great pleasure of lecturing as part of the uh, audiovisual library lecture series here at the United Nations on the topic of climate change and the ocean. I've selected this topic for two principal reasons. One, it is an issue of global concern, but also it's an issue that I think provides a very interesting example of how two different regimes can intersect, or in this case perhaps not intersect, but where there is a need for more cooperation among two different regimes. Those regimes are the United Nations Convention Framework Convention on Climate Change, which I will refer to as UNFCCC, and the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which often is referred to as UNCLOS. Now, both of these are global framework conventions, and they can be supplemented either by decisions of the parties, such as the case with UNFCCC, uh, decisions of the conference of the parties, or through additional implementing agreements or protocols such as we've seen in both the UNFCCC and UNCLOS. Now, before I go into more detail about these two different regimes, there is one point... common point that they have, and that is they were both inspired by the same small island state of Malta. So, in 1967, um, the legendary four-hour speech of Ambassador Arvid Pardo before the United Nations General Assembly uh, on the seabed, launched this establishment of the seabed committee, which was eventually led to the United Nations Conference of the Law of the Sea, the third conference, and the adoption of UNCLOS. In 1988, Malta again spoke before the United Nations General Assembly, but this time to proclaim uh, climate change as a common concern of humankind. This speech eventually also led the way to the eventual adoption of the UNFCCC in 1992. So, we're going to examine one regime, which is principally atmospheric, and the other one, which is oceanic. Now... um, and what we're going to look at is also the broader question of can international law, or how international law, can respond to matters of such uh, importance uh, to the international community as climate change and the impacts it's having on the ocean. Now, the impact of climate change on the ocean are multiple. But I'm going to be focusing in my lecture today on three specific impacts. Ocean acidification, ocean warming, and ocean deoxygenation. Of course, many of us are also familiar with problems of sea level rise, the melting glaciers and ice sheets, uh, and many other issues, but time is limited, so I'm going to focus on these particular areas that I feel are perhaps of... are lesser known, as science is really only now uh, looking at these. So, I will... my lecture will be in two broad parts. Uh, First, I'm going to look at the science, because to understand how we're going to respond through law, we need to understand the science. And then the second part will be devoted to examining the regime for oceans under the law of the Sea Convention and of climate change. Now, on the science. The ocean has played a very critical role, and continues to, in regulating the impacts of climate change. I use the singular for ocean, because sometimes we say oceans. The scientists tell us there is only one ocean. There is a critical relationship between the climate system and the ocean. Um, Indeed, because of the growing concerns about the impact that climate change is having on the ocean, in 2016, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change took a decision uh, to devote a special report examining specifically the impacts of climate change on the ocean. And it is intended to be submitted for approval to the 51st session of the IPCC in 2019. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or in short, IPCC, its fifth assessment report, oceans have absorbed more than 90% of the combined heat stored in the climate system between 1971 and 2010. As explained by the IPCC, the ocean's heat capacity is approximately 1,000 times greater than that of the atmosphere. As a result, the Earth has been absorbing more heat than it has emitted back into the atmosphere, and most of it is being stored in the ocean. So, without the ocean, we would actually be experiencing right now much more severe climate change and global warming. The ocean today, however, is warmer than at any time since record has been kept, since 1880, and it is having very serious impact on the marine environment and other aspects as well, such as the storms we've been seeing, increased hurricanes, but again, I'm not going to be looking at those today. The marine environment is particularly vulnerable, and especially coral reefs. Tropical coral reefs... although they represent just a fraction of the Earth's surface, they provide habitat to 25% of all marine species. Healthy reefs also protect uh, economic benefits through tourism, and also they protect coastal systems uh, from storms and surges. Now, there are multiple threats to coral reefs. Land-based pollution, tourism. But the problem is climate change is exacerbating existing threats. It is weakening the resilience of coral reefs to withstand these other impacts. Uh, for example, according to the US National Oceanic and Atmospheric Department, coral bleaching, which leads to the death of coral, and disease brought on by climate change, and coupled with events like El Niño and La Nina are the largest and most pervasive threats to coral reefs around the world. The Great Barrier Reef is the largest barrier reef in the world. It extends some 2,300 kilometers, and it is also a World Heritage Site. But it is... it has... is continuing to suffer death, massive death. Um, this was the case in March 2016, where there was an extreme ocean heat wave. And, as was described recently in 2018 Nature Research Journal, they describe the situation of the coral reef and the Great Barrier as having been cooked uh, because of that heat. Um, and as a result, um, some 30% of the Great Barrier reef has been killed. Um, and the problem is, is that this will not end. And scientists are telling us that we are witnessing the massive loss of coral, not only in Great Barrier Reef, but around the world. In addition, ocean warming is also impacting fish distribution in different parts of the world, Uh, not simply in the southern hemisphere, which is most impacted, but for example, in the Northeast Atlantic, uh, where the sea surface, the sea surface temperature around the UK and Ireland have been warming up to six times greater than the global average. This, in turn, has changed the migration of the fish, the mackerel, who are looking for cooler water, and therefore have been moving, migrating north. Um, This resulted in a problem. As the fish migrated north, suddenly um, countries such as um, Iceland and Faroe, who normally did not get the northeast, Atlantic mackerel, were having an abundance of it, which created problems in the quota system for fisheries, in the RFMOs, and it led to a very serious political dispute. Anyway, it was resolved, luckily, but this is only one case. It's emblematic that as the ocean warms, the impact it's having on the marine environment includes fish, and this is going to have an impact when we consider that Over 500 million people depend, directly or indirectly, on fisheries and aquaculture for their livelihoods. And some 3 billion people obtain their nutrition from fish, and at least 50% of their animal protein. So, this impact on fisheries is a very major concern. The second impact of climate change is ocean deoxygenation, basically meaning that the ocean is losing oxygen. The oceans are actually the lungs of the world providing 50 some even say 80% of the Earth's oxygen. The problem is that with ocean warming, the oxygen... there's stratification in the, uh, in the waters, and this stratification prevents the distribution of water. So, uh, we're seeing a change, and as a result, um, oxygen is not able to circulate. <clears throat> I should say, I'm not a scientist, so as a layperson I'm doing my best to explain these very technical issues. Um, But they have been um, uh, observing this, and it shows that um, there has been a steady decline in the level of oxygen in the ocean. According to a recent study, the ocean that covered uh, the period between 1958 and 2015, the ocean has steadily been losing oxygen since the mid-1980s. Now, this is important, as all marine life depends on oxygen to produce its energy. And the paradox is that the less oxygen there is in the ocean, the more oxygen marine life uses, thereby depleting more the oxygen in the ocean. Certain species... of course, not all species are going to be impacted alike, but tuna, a very valuable species, is very impacted by the loss of oxygen, whereas jellyfish, which seems to be the most resilient to other forms of pollution, uh, is resilient to deoxygenation. Now, a third impact on the ocean from climate change is known as ocean acidification. The ocean has absorbed approximately 30% of emitted anthropogenic carbon dioxide, which in turn has changed the pH balance of the ocean. And so now the ocean is what they call more acidic. According to the IPCC Fourth Assessment Report, in quotes, the uptake of anthropogenic carbon dioxide since 1750 has led to the ocean becoming more acidic, with an average decrease in the surface pH of 0.1%. Units, which may not sound like much, but it is having very significant impacts. Furthermore, the IPCC 5th assessment report, which is the latest report, concluded with high confidence that oceanic uptake of carbon dioxide since the industrial era has corresponded with uh, this 26% or more increase in acidity of the ocean. So, The ocean, where the pH balance for millions, maybe billions of years, has been stable, thanks to human activities, and the emission... the excessive emission of carbon dioxide is now becoming more acidic. What does this mean? This has also an impact on the marine environment and marine life, because this change in pH level means that marine life cannot make shells and bones. Um, There is a reduction in the aragonite saturation, which is necessary for calcification, such as corals, certain plankton, shellfish, oysters, lobsters, crabs. Um, And of course, while we're seeing economically in certain parts of the world, such as the United States, where oyster farms are suffering because of ocean acidification, but it's not simply that type of economic loss, it also impacts the food chain which is very important. So, the National Geographic observed that, for tens of millions of years, Earth's oceans have maintained a relatively stable level of acidity. It's within the steady environment that the rich and varied web of life in today's seas has arisen and flourished. But research shows that this ancient balance is being undone by a recent drop in surface pH that could have devastating global consequences. So now I am now going to look at the legal framework and to look at how these two principal regimes because there are other conventions but these are the two principal instruments that have application. So the law of the sea convention which is often referred to as the constitution for the oceans was negotiated during a period when we really didn't know uh, that much about climate change. Scientists were studying it, but it was not on the international uh, agenda. Consequently, it's it's not surprising that there is no reference to climate change in the Law of the Sea Convention. By contrast, of course, the Framework Convention on Climate Change was the result of growing awareness in the international community about climate change. Nonetheless, when it was negotiated, There was not that much information as to the impact of climate change on the ocean. So on the one hand, we have a convention that is intended to cover all matters related to the ocean, but doesn't expressly relate to climate change, and we have another that is meant to cover uh, climate change issues, but doesn't really address ocean issues. This is the dilemma that we face. So, let's see uh, whether we can actually find a way to address these very pressing issues. There are also some uh, structural differences between these two regimes. Um, The UNFCCC is, like many other multilateral environmental agreements, uh, which provides for a dynamic, party-driven governance structure. So, for example, according to Article 7, The Conference of the Parties, which are the state parties to the convention, is the supreme body of the convention, and it has the obligation to keep under constant regular review the implementation of the convention and any related instruments that it may adopt. Um, And it has within its mandate the the competence to take decisions, which are called decisions of the Conference of the Parties. By contrast, there isn't a parallel decision-making process for UNCLOS. Um, under paragraph 2 of article 319, the UN Secretary General can convene, when necessary, meetings of the state parties in accordance with the convention itself. And this meeting of the state parties, in short, is known as uh, SPLOS. But the functions of the state party meeting under the Law of the Sea convention differ substantively from that of the climate change. Um, And it doesn't really provide a process for uh, systematic and detailed adoption of decisions that can constitute subsequent practice, even agreement of the parties, in the interpretation and implementation of the convention. In addition, the UNFCCC has two permanent subsidiary bodies that were established by the Conference of the Parties. One is a subsidiary body for scientific advice, and that's what it does. It provides the parties with information and advice on scientific and technological matters. And the second is a subsidiary body for implementation, which provides the parties um, information and advice on implementation of the convention. These bodies also meet regularly. By contrast, the subsidiary bodies under UNCLOS are different. Uh, The International Seabed Authority, is a permanent body, and the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf. But their functions are very different. One is concerned with administration of seabed mining, and the other one is... uh, provides expert uh, report on delineation of the Outer Continental Shelf. I have stressed this a little bit because this is important in understanding how these international regimes can actually address this problem of climate change. And the ocean. So, I will first now start with a more detailed review of the UNFCCC regime. So, it is a framework convention that provides, in very broad strokes, the obligation of the parties, the principles, and its operative structure. Now, the ultimate objective of the UNFCCC, which I have to admit is not easy to understand, but I'm going to read it because it's important is provided in article 2. It is the stabilization of greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. Such levels should be achieved within a time frame sufficient to allow ecosystems to adapt naturally to climate change, to ensure that food production is not threatened and to enable economic development to proceed in a sustainable manner. It is somewhat of an obtuse definition. More importantly, though, for understanding the differences, what we see from Article 2 it has a very strong atmospheric orientation. It links the successful achievement of the UNFCCC to stabilization of atmospheric greenhouse gases. So, while the climate system does include oceans, the design of the UNFCCC is really very atmospheric and has a terrestrial orientation. Now, the UNFCCC also applies to all the greenhouse gases that are not covered by the Montreal Protocol of the Vienna Convention for the Protection of the Ozone Layer. It does not Provide um, specific reduction requirements uh, of these greenhouse gases other than this general obligation for developed countries to reduce their emissions um, uh, to return to their 1990 levels. So it's a framework convention that doesn't have specific reduction requirements of these greenhouse gases. Now, the reason I'm stressing this is that when it comes to the ocean, and in particular, ocean acidification. Carbon dioxide is really the principal greenhouse gas that we are concerned about. So the fact that the climate change regime is more than carbon dioxide is something that needs to be taken into account, and is a challenge actually. Now the way it works also is that um, carbon dioxide, of course, is, is a principal greenhouse gas for climate change in general. But the climate change regime is structured so that it gives a carbon dioxide equivalent to the other greenhouse gases. For example, methane. Methane has a 25-carbon dioxide equivalent. What this means is that methane is a much more powerful greenhouse gas. So, if you're able to reduce more methane, you can continue as a state to emit more carbon dioxide. And again, keeping in mind that carbon dioxide is the main problem for the ocean, this is one of the challenges we have. So, um, now, it isn't that the UNFCCC completely ignored the ocean. The ocean is there. Uh, Article 4, subparagraph D, which is the uh, article that establishes Obligations that applies to all parties, not just developed countries. Um, It states that uh, all parties taking into account their common but differentiated responsibilities and their national and regional development priorities, objectives, and circumstances shall promote sustainable management, promote and cooperate in the conservation and enhancement as appropriate of sinks and reservoirs of all greenhouse gases not covered by the Montreal protocol including biomass forests and oceans as well as other terrestrial coastal marine ecosystems so oceans and the marine ecosystems are mentioned but in a very functional role it's not to protect them just for protecting them it's to protect them because they are sinks and reservoirs if you recall um, oceans have been absorbing carbon dioxide and heat. That means as a, as a sink, they absorb, and they store them as a reservoir. So... Uh, and so the problem is that they've had this functional role, but now are suffering the consequences. Now, when we also look at the, um, uh, the climate change uh, regime, the terrestrial emphasis is also seen in o- how it's been implemented over the years, and there's been a very strong emphasis on forests. So for many years, they've been working on and they developed something known as the REDD+, which means reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, and the role of conservation, sustainable management of forests, and enhancement of forest carbon stocks in developing countries. They're very long name. And I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Kyoto, as well. But there is nothing similar like this for the ocean, because forests obviously are important. They've been known... also important for absorbing carbon dioxide. But there's been a tremendous emphasis on the oceans and... on the... on forests and also on land-use agriculture. Now, um, so uh, UNFCCC is a framework convention. and um, It foresaw that it would be implementing uh, agreements or protocols, and Kyoto Protocol was one of these. Now, the Kyoto Protocol um, actually was uh, negotiated to have specific emission reduction targets, and these were binding targets. The Kyoto Protocol was only uh, had a period, a commitment period of four years between two thousand and eight and two thousand and twelve. But here again. Article 3 of the Kyoto Protocol provides the overall objective of the parties is to reduce the overall emissions of aggregate anthropogenic carbon dioxide equivalent emissions of the greenhouse gases that are listed in Annex A. So it's not that you have to reduce carbon dioxide, but the aggregate equivalent. Again, recalling that for the ocean, carbon dioxide is really the key carbon um, greenhouse gas. And also, uh, Kyoto only applied to developed country parties that were listed in in Annex B, and not to all countries. And its reduction was 5% overall of their 1990 level, so it had a very little limited impact. And again, Kyoto had also a focus on forests. Um, In Kyoto, it makes express reference to forests, but no reference to oceans. Nevertheless, of course, the C still applies, and so you would still have to conserve the oceans, but again, to give them enhanced role as a sink or reservoir. Um, now, the Kyoto Protocol um, ended in 2012. It was amended in 2012 with the Doha Amendment, which is not yet in, a for- in force, and, uh, and it did uh, up the reduction target to 20%, but again, oceans never figured in the negotiations. So we still do not have any linkage between emission reduction and the ocean, ocean acidification, deoxygenation, or warming under the amended Kyoto Protocol. Now I want to speak a little bit about the Paris Agreement. Um, um, so um, in 2015, the parties adopted the Paris Agreement, which is a separate from the Kyoto Protocol. And the purpose of the Paris Agreement is to strengthen the implementation of the UNFCCC, which includes Article 2, as we know, which is the stabilization of atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases. But a little different though, this time is that the Paris Agreement applies to all parties. Uh, where all parties have to make some commitment, although it's not... it's looked at as more of a... not commitment, but contribution, um, to mitigation. So, that is important. But there are no targets. There are no emission reduction targets under Paris. Um, What is important, however, is that for the first time, um, the Paris Agreement provided a temperature target. Uh, which we didn't have before. So, now it is given a temperature meaning to that otherwise, as I say, obtuse definition of Article 2 under the convention. And what is that? Well, under the Paris Agreement, Article 2.1a, the aim is to strengthen the global response to the threat of climate change, including by holding The increase in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees centigrade above pre industrial levels and pursuing efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre industrial levels. However, what we don't know and what is not clear is what impact this temperature target has for addressing the impacts of climate change on the ocean... again, in this case, ocean acidification, warming, and deoxygenation. The report of the Structured Expert Dialogue that was prepared for the Conference of the Parties to the UNFCCC noted that with a temperature increase of 2 degrees centigrade, the risk of ocean warming and acidification would become high. However, under the existing regime, there is no direct linkage There is no system of linkage between temperature targets and the multiple impacts on the ocean, in particular ocean acidification. This is a critical issue, really, and and we do need additional scientific study, and hopefully the report that the IPCC is preparing on the ocean and the cryosphere uh, will provide important uh, information on this. The existing data says that even if atmospheric carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere do not rise above 450 parts per million, ocean acidification will have profound impacts on many marine systems unless carbon dioxide emissions are reduced by 50%. As carbon dioxide emissions are the only cause of ocean acidification, unless this temperature range is linked directly to concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it is questionable uh, that the achievement of the temperature will necessarily result in the decrease of ocean acidification, at least. Perhaps for global warming and deoxygenation, but again, these are all questions that need to be answered. Another important aspect of the Paris Agreement concerns the timing for what is known as the peaking of greenhouse gas emissions. So, under the Paris Agreement, all countries are supposed to peak their emissions of greenhouse gas as early as possible, giving more time to developing countries. Um, but again, this peaking... when states are determining their peaking, they're usually looking atmospheric. It is not necessarily linked to the ocean. And again, this is another issue, question, that we raise. Now, the Paris Agreement itself makes. Just passing reference to the ocean in the preamble, where the parties note the importance of ensuring the integrity of all ecosystems, including the ocean. Um, And the preamble of the Paris Agreement, like the UNFCCC, also recognizes the importance of the conservation and enhancement uh, of sinks and reservoirs of greenhouse gases, uh, that would include, of course, the ocean. And... and in Article 5, uh, subparagraph 1 of Paris, it reflects what was in the uh, Framework Convention requiring that states take action to conserve and enhance, as appropriate, sinks and reservoirs. But again, this limits their roles to a functional one. That means that what they're looking to is to have them play the role of absorbing carbon dioxide uh, from the atmosphere. What we need to see is something that is directed specifically at um, addressing the input of carbon dioxide into the ocean. Um, Another issue that is important um, concerns adaptation to climate change. And the Paris Agreement gives adaptation equal status with mitigation, which is very important for many developing parties. So, uh, Article 2B of the Paris Agreement makes express reference to resilience building as part of enhancing the implementation of the Framework Convention to increase the ability to adapt to the adverse impacts of climate change and foster climate resilience and low greenhouse emissions development in a matter that does not threaten food production. This would also include ocean although, as I said so far, the emphasis has been terrestrial and not on the ocean. Um, now, also, it provides that the parties um, are supposed to enhance their adaptive capacity, strengthen resilience, and reduce vulnerability to climate change. Again, it should apply to the ocean as well. Article 7, subparagraph 9, also provides for adaptation planning where each party commits to include an assessment of climate change impacts and vulnerabilities that will contribute to preparing nationally determined uh, prioritized actions that takes into account vulnerable people places and ecosystems again oceans and marine environment would be part of this Now, while the UNFCCC itself does not provide a definition of what adaptation to climate change means, uh, the IPCC does. And it states that adaptation refers to adjustments in ecological, social, or economic systems in response to actual or expected climatic stimuli and their effects or impacts. Given the increased emphasis on adaptation to the adverse impacts of climate change in the Paris Agreement. This raises the question of how will parties adapt to ocean acidification, deoxygenation, and warming, which are what we call slow onslaught events. Now, one of the innovative approaches adopted by the Paris Agreement is a requirement under Article 4, subparagraph 2, for all parties to submit successive and progressive nationally determined contributions in order to achieve the temperature goals articulated in Article 2 through domestic mitigation measures. However, if, as asserted by the International Association of Scientists, if at least we need to reduce carbon dioxide by 50% by 2050, how will we do this to reverse the impacts of ocean acidification? These will have to be incorporated in to these nationally determined contributions. And by the way, these contributions will also be subject matter of what's called a global stock taking every five years. And once again, will ocean be part of this? Now, I should add that many states have included ocean and marine environment in their NDCs, as they're called, but they've included them But without necessarily being able to say what they can do to mitigate the problems of ocean acidification, deoxygenation, and warming. All right, we've spoken quite a bit about the climate change regime, but now I want to address UNCLOS. So, the United Nations Convention for the Law of the Sea is the principal global instrument for regulating all activities of the oceans in times of peace. Part 12 of UNCLOS provided the first overarching global instrument for protection and preservation of the marine environment. However, as we said at the time, climate change was not uh, on the international agenda. We didn't really know as much about it as we do today, and certainly the impacts on the ocean. So, instead, the sources were more pollution sources, threats to the marine environment from dumping, from land based sources like sewage outfalls or operational accidental vessel sources of pollution. So it's quite understandable that climate change is not part of it. But the question is, despite this, can we look at the provisions of the Law of the Sea Convention and actually Read into it climate change. Does the Law of the Sea Convention give us the framework, the legal foundation, nonetheless, to address this very pressing concern? So, for example, how do we categorize the harm caused from climate change to the ocean? How do we categorize ocean acidification, global warming, deoxygenation? Is it pollution? Article 1. Subparagraph 14 of UNCLOS defines pollution as, quote, the introduction by man, directly or indirectly, of substances or energy into the marine environment, which results, or is likely to result, in such deleterious effects as harm to living resources and marine life and hazards to human health. Well, it would seem that this definition is broad enough actually include at least carbon dioxide as a pollutant, and we are seeing the deleterious, the harmful effects that climate change is having to the ocean. Um, So, can we define carbon dioxide as pollution under UNCLOS? I would submit that the definition, indeed, would merit a positive response. There is ample scientific evidence of that harmful effect that... uh, uh, that is happening to the ocean. This change in pH level, for example, is causing harm to marine resources and marine life, particularly coral reef, crustaceans, and marine fishes. We've seen the change in fish migration. Um, Also, um, not just migration, but it's also affecting where fish spawn, their larvae, um, the size of fish, um, so, I have just given a limited example of the negative harmful impacts of climate change on the ocean, uh, much more. So, one of the great strengths of Part 12 of the Law of the Sea Convention is the very clear and unqualified language of Article 192 that states have the obligation to protect and preserve the marine environment. In fact, in 2017, the South China Sea Arbitral Award gave a very detailed impre- interpretation of Article 192. The tribunal explained that the obligation to protect the marine environment means protection from future damage, and preserve means to maintain or improve the existing condition of the marine environment. Furthermore, the Tribunal stated that these two elements included the obligation to take active measures and to prevent the degradation of the existing marine environment. Moreover, according to Article 194 subparagraph 1 of UNCLOS, states are required, inter alia, to take all measures, either individually or jointly, necessary to prevent, reduce, and control pollution of the marine environment from any source, which can be land-based, atmospheric, or vessel source. Um, These are also all the sources of the greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide, that contribute to the harmful effects of climate change on the ocean and the marine environment. Furthermore, as explained by the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, The use of the language to ensure, in Article 194, creates an obligation of due diligence for states. And this has been defined by the International Court of Justice in the Paul Mills case, and subsequently applied by ITLOS and other tribunals, to mean an obligation for states to adopt the appropriate rules and measures, to exercise vigilance in their enforcement, and also monitor the activities of private and public operators. It also includes uh, an obligation to deploy adequate means to exercise the best possible efforts to do the utmost to obtain the required result. It is an interesting question, then, as to what extent the due diligence obligation of states extends to prevention of the excessive emission of atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide from activities under the control, either by public or private operators. This would presumably extend to land-based activities. Some have asserted, some scholars, that states indeed have a due diligence obligation under Article 194 to regulate and control activities such as carbon dioxide-emitting power generators that use oil or coal, oil extraction industries, coal miling, or possibly deforestation. In addition, Article 90, 194, Subparagraph 2, obligates states to take all the necessary measures to ensure that activities under their jurisdiction or control are so conducted as to not cause damage by pollution to other states and their environment. This is the well accepted general principle of international law, also known as the Sicutera tuo ut alium non ledis use your own property in such a manner so as not to injure your neighbor. And it's founded in the classic case, uh, the 1947 trail smelter arbitration case between the US and Canada, and also the first case before the International Court of Justice the 1949 Corfu Channel case. Article 194, subparagraph 5 of UNCLOS further imposes an obligation for states to protect rare or fragile ecosystems and the habitat of depleted, threatened, or endangered species and other forms of coral life. Well, we've talked about already the harm that is being done to coral reefs around the world, so clearly this would apply to coral reefs and other endangered uh, marine life. Now, UNCLOS also provides other obligations that are important. Um, For example, under Article 207, uh, it requires the states have to adopt laws and regulations to prevent, reduce, and control pollution of the marine environment from land-based sources, or from atmospheric sources under Article 2012. One of the important requirements, of course, of... of, uh, and challenges of climate change is that it requires collective action. One state may be reducing emissions, uh, but if the other state is not, again, it's the overall impact that we need to have. Uh, Meeting the temperature requirement or ultimate objective of the climate change regime under the UNFCCC cannot be done through independent unilateral actions. Under Article 197 of UNCLOS, there is a clear obligation for states to cooperate on a global basis or regionally, either directly or through the competent international organizations, to formulate and elaborate international rules standards, and recommended practices and procedures for the protection and preservation of the marine environment, which presumably would also apply to climate change impacts on the ocean and the marine environment. Anyway, I've given a brief uh, overview uh, of the key provisions of UNCLOS, and I think it's fair to conclude that, in light of the scientific evidence on the harm to the marine environment, in particular, fragile uh, ecosystems and habitats. States have an obligation under UCLOS at the minimum, to adopt the necessary laws, rules, and measures to prevent, to control, to reduce the emissions of carbon dioxide from all sources that are contributing to the deleterious effects of climate change on the ocean and the marine environment, as well as to cooperate at either the global or regional levels, and neither directly or through the competent international organizations. However, on the latter issue of cooperation, unlike the climate change regime, UNCLOS doesn't have a mechanism to adopt decisions of the state parties for collective action, such as the REDD+, for forests under the UNFCCC system. The practice to date has been to negotiate and adopt new instruments such as the uh, 1995 Fishstocks agreement and the current negotiation of an international legally binding instrument for the conservation and sustainable use of biological diversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction. So, an interesting question is whether the duty to cooperate under Article 197 of UNCLOS would mean cooperation under the UNFCCC system for ocean and the marine environment. So, I now come to my concluding comments. I should say that this lecture has really just provided an overview of what is a very complex question of two complex legal regimes. Um, Nevertheless, I hope in this interview, in this overview, uh, certain points can be gleaned. First, there is a gap in the international legal framework um, in that it doesn't directly address the harmful impacts on the ocean and marine environment from climate change. Second, in relation to the UNFCCC system regime, which includes Paris Agreement and Kyoto, if the amendment um, becomes effective, it is clear that the existing framework does not adequately address the ocean and the marine environment and its ecosystems, which are cast in limited roles as providing a functional purpose as a sink or reservoir for absorbing greenhouse gases. Third, the UNFCCC system has a clear atmospheric and terrestrial focus. However, this does not preclude parties from adopting decisions of the conference of the parties or the meetings of the parties and creating a mechanism or mechanisms through its subsidiary bodies to address the impact of climate change on the ocean and marine environment. Now, the law of the Sea Convention, by contrast, applies directly to the ocean and marine environment. While it does not expressly make reference to climate change, its definition of pollution is broad enough to encompass carbon dioxide and, if necessary, other greenhouse gases if they are shown to have harmful impacts on the marine environment. Fifth, several of the provisions of the Law of the Sea Convention can be interpreted as imposing obligations on state parties to address climate change impacts on the ocean through the adoption of laws, regulations, and other measures, including due diligence obligations, that would extend to land-based activities where much of the source of climate change uh, comes from. Sixth, an interesting question, of course, is whether the duty to cooperate under Article 197 of UNCLOS creates an obligation for state parties to cooperate under the climate change regime. Uh, both... Uh, I have to say, the climate change re- regime has virtual universal participation, so the likelihood is that parties to UNCLOS are also parties to the climate change regime. So, climate change in the ocean presents a very good example of where there is a need for regime interaction. One existing mechanism to provide a foundation for possible regime interaction or cooperation um, is the UN Oceans. The UN Oceans was established as an interagency mechanism with the objective to enhance the coordination, coherence, and effectiveness of competent organizations of the United Nations system and the International Seabed Authority in conformity with the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Among its mandate is to strengthen and promote coordination and coherence of United Nations system activities related to ocean and coastal areas. Why not then coordination with the UNFCCC? At this point, its cooperation coordination amongst the secretariats But this would be an important beginning, and my understanding is such cooperation is actually starting. So, this, I think, is a positive note, of which I can end my lecture. And thank you all very much for your patience in listening to this, and I hope that uh, you found this to be an interesting subject matter, and perhaps one that you will pursue as well. Thank you so much.